Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. How to DJ. I think radio is one of your first freedoms in the fact that you finally can make choices of your own musically what you're going to listen to. I'm getting to do exciting stuff and I feel like the show is evolving all the time. The early days, the first year at XFM was, was the most fun the most I can't believe we're getting away with it oh no hang on we, we haven't, haven't got, got away, away with it. it a podcast exploring life stories techniques minds and experiences of much loved DJs where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45 and for this episode a multi-award winning DJ who started his radio career on Piccadilly Radio in Manchester they got me to do the top 10 programme I didn't like some of the records so I smashed the records up with a hammer live on air and played some songs that I wanted to play he spent more than a decade on Capital Gold. That first day, Richard, my boy, that was very good, and it, it was. He now presents on BBC Radio Manchester. I should also say, he's the frontman in the Salford Jets. Mike Sweeney, welcome to How to DJ. You did that brilliantly. Wish I, <laughs> wish I could do an intro like that. See, I've only been doing this 42 years, and I couldn't have done the intro like that. I'd, it... I'd have stumbled somewhere. 42 years. Does it feel like it? No. It doesn't. And I can remember starting as if it was yesterday. I don't feel that much different than 42 years ago. And I don't mean it in a like, I don't really, I actually don't feel any different. I know more, I'm not quite as impulsive as I was. But no, it, it, it seems it seems a few years ago, but not, not to that extent, no it doesn't. What's your earliest memory of radio, Mike? Of radio, you mean the whole thing, right. It was called the Home Service and the Light, and the Light Programme. And everybody had posh voices. And I'm talking, we had a big valve radio. My mum had this big valve radio, the size of a small house. And when you turned it on, it glowed and then eventually came to life because it had valves in it. And there were all exotic locations around the dial, like, Hungary and Russia and it was really weird but there were only two programmes so uh, the home service I can't do it without being a posh voice is the equivalent of what Radio 4 is now the light programme it was the, the, the mum and dad or the granddad and grandmum of Radio 1 and then Radio 2 so there was very little for the likes of me as a kid and I don't want to been take the whole interview up but I remember going to my auntie's um, house and they had a radio gram. So radio gram was a record player and a radio, and that was the size of a, a small street of houses with a walnut casing, very posh, and held the, the main part of the room. And I remember being at my auntie's and this song came on the radio. And you know, I mean, what I'd be probably eight, 54, 55 it would be. So I'm eight, eight years, seven, eight years of age. And I knew even then that this song that I was listening to had nothing to do with my mum and dad or my auntie 
and my uncle, who would only be in maybe in the late 20s or something, maybe 30, and it was Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets, and it had come out the year before, and it had made the charts in the UK on the back of the film Blackboard Jungle. So I heard this Rock Around the Clock, and I remember thinking, wow. And then he came over, Bill Haley, to the UK, and God bless him, he was a bit plump, and he was probably 30-something. So if you look at a picture of him now, you think he was in his early 50s. And he wasn't really that attractive. However, that was all we had. And then Elvis and Heartbreak Hotel came through at the January 56, and that was the start of rock and roll properly. The problem was, there wasn't much of it on the radio. So what you did, you listened to anything on the radio, anything, with the hope that every now and then you'd get a pop tune. There was a, a radio station called Radio Luxembourg that were on, I think, Long Wave, and you could get that. But that you would listen to in the evening, and it would fade, and oh, and you get all, but you'd just listen to it, because they did play just pop music. So, it wasn't like now when you're saturated with music. So a lot of my radio memories are also of like, you know, two-way family favourites and, and comedians on the radio. And they had a ventriloquist on the radio. A ventriloquist on the radio. And you think, you, you can't do that. Well, you could, because it, it was steam radio. And those are my, so my early memories pre-TV. We didn't get a telly till... 57, maybe later, 58 or 59, we got a little telly with my man rented. You didn't buy tellies in those days. And it was about slightly bigger than a smartphone, black and white. And I remember my dad somehow managed to f fix some sort of an aerial. So we got commercial TV without the actual aerial. And I remember we turned it on and it was an advert. It was, Remember where the yellow went when you brushed your teeth with Pepsodent, which is a toothbrush, toothpaste commercial. And that sort of catapulted us into the, the modern world in a way. But radio, prior to that, that was your only method of communication. You sat around the radio, around, around it, like a TV but without a screen, and listened to the news. And you listened to music programs, but it would be the, the Northern Dance Orchestra, the NDO. Everybody had very, very posh voices, you know. I mean, nobody, nobody, apart from maybe Arthur Askey, or you might get, oh, crikey. You get the odd regional accent. I'm trying to think of anybody that, George Formby, perhaps, is an example. I'm leaning on the lamppost. But my class, my my people, us, we were very, very rarely represented or engaged by radio at the time. Sorry, that was a long answer. It was close to here that you're talking about growing up. We're at Seven Brothers at Media City in Salford, right next to the studio you do your radio show from. It was near here, wasn't it, that you grew up? I lived uh, a mile from here in Salford. Graham Nash from the Hollies lived two streets, three streets away from me. Graham's maybe four years, I'm 76 in September, Graham's I think 80-ish soon. Um, Salford looked like the set for Coronation Street. Uh, it was all terraced houses and they had that juxtaposition of factories would be next to homes. Every street had a corner shop. 
the, the, the supermarket didn't exist at that time. So you bought everything from individual shops. There were grocers where you could go and buy sugar and broken biscuits. We used to buy broken biscuits because they were cheap. Uh, and there were green grocers and there would be tobacconists who just sold tobacco, basically. And there would be little shops that would sell toffees. You know, a toffee shop would just sell toffees. And that's where we lived and juxtaposed. I mean, I've used the word twice, though, but our whole society with all these little villages and these little villages made up Salford and then Salford was next door to Manchester and it was all just down I mean it's still down the road that the street that I was born in was half it was knocked down but they kept the other half so the other half of that street is still there now in the middle of Odsall all these years later what were your ambitions back then I had no ambition. I was I was never like any other kids. Um, I don't mean it in, in any sort of grandiose way. I was always unusual. I remember like I liked the goons and a lot of my mates just they just didn't get them. I remember I can't remember not reading. I think I must have started reading properly from a really young age because I remember my mum taking me to the big library on Regent Road and my mum took me there because I'd read all the science fiction books in the kids' library. Now, for a working-class kid with f living in a little flat in Salford with two brothers and two sisters, I used to go to the library and sit and read in this lovely, warm room. Nobody bothered me. So I lived there sometimes, and I'd read all the science fiction books. And my mum got permission for me to read adult science fiction only at 13, so I must have been reading avidly at that age. I had a great vocabulary when I was very young. I, remember I used to use it to surprise adults sometimes. I'd throw a word into the conversation and they, they could see them jump slightly, but I had no ambition. So we got to, I left school in the summer of 62 and didn't have a job. And my mum said to me, what do you want to do, our Michael? She also called me Howard Michael, never called me Mike. And I said, I don't know much. She said, well, I've got you the job. Oh, as an apprentice engineer, electrical fitter at AEI in Trafford Park. So, well, I don't know that I want to do that. My mum said, you start in January. Oh, all right then. So I had to, I went through the October, November, December. I went to school and ran errands and um, we didn't have a telephone at school. I used to go to the telephone box down the road and make calls on behalf of the school to sort of bridge those three months. So it's a January of 1963. Second worst winter, or possibly the worst winter of the last century. It's a toss up between that and 1947. It was still snowing in May. The, the, the country was frozen, completely frozen. And I went to a record hop, what you'd now call a disco, at the, the Dock Mission, which was like a an old building on the corner of Trafford Road, which is, again, half a mile from where we are. It's now an academy school, Victorian building, and it served the spiritual needs of sailors because the docks were there. So, you know, it had a, like a sort of a Christian portion of it in terms of you could go there and, and there would be vicars and stuff, I would imagine, there. But it also, of course, had loads of rooms and one of them was a record hop. So I went down 
on this night in January, and then a pair of tight jeans on, what you know, called skinnies, drain pipes, donkey jacket, collar turned up, so I looked hard, uh, hair combed back with like brill cream in, like Elvis, but I didn't look like Elvis at all. Black t-shirt, medallion, studded belt, wanted to look really hard, and a pair of wellies with the top turned down, so that I'd look like the lads on the waltzers, the gypsy lads on the waltzers, and look really cool like them. And I went to this record hop, got there, it was really quiet, because the weather was dreadful. So I went up to the guy playing the records, even then I don't think we called them DJs, they were just guys that played records. I said, can you play me the new Shadow single? Foot tapper, he went, oh, Willie he said, I'll play it after this. And I walked back to the bar, this is 16 a bit years ago, to get a Coke. And he played this record and I stopped in the middle of the room. Stood still, two and a half minutes of something that was completely alien. And I went back and I said, I didn't ask who, I said, what was that? He said, oh, it's a new single from the Beatles. It's called Please Please Me. It's just come out today. And I'd heard Love Me Do in the October. It was okay, but it was very derivative, a bit like Hey Baby, a bit like, a bit of Everly Brothers, a bit of Roy Orbison. But, you know, do you too. Please please me. Good God almighty. Even now, hair on my arms on end, and I just thought, I want to do that. I want, I want, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I want to be like them. And before that, I, I couldn't be Billy Fury or Cliff or Elvis or Del Shannon or Bobby V or Marty Wilde. I couldn't be any of them. They, they, they weren't like me. I was a scruff from Salford. I could be like that. And it took me three years to get in a band till the summer of 65. Because I knew then that's all I wanted to do was being a rock and roll band and be a singer at that moment. It took me two and a half, nearly three years to do it. I had no money. I was doing a job I hated, singing Beatles songs, trying to get me through the day, but knowing that I didn't want to do a job, a proper job. I wanted to be a rock and roll star. How did you make it happen? 65, I got in a band. I wasn't a great singer. Some would say I'm still not a great singer. And uh, I remember that one of the bands, I kept singing backing vocals for, and they couldn't get a lead singer. Playing tambourine and maracas and a bit of mouth organ, they couldn't get a lead singer. And I kept saying, what about me? No. It's obviously they just didn't want me to do it because I, I couldn't sing. So I went back to my Salford roots and, and made a deal. I said, look, if you let me be your lead singer, I won't smash the windows on your van, which I thought was a great deal. You know, and they, they agreed with me on this. It was a great deal. We'll get this rubbish singer in, because I was a proper terror when I was a kid. Well, that's where I was. So I got in that band, then another band, and I started to get a bit better, and I was in some decent bands. And eventually ended up in a glam rock band called Smithy in the 70s. And we had everything it, it took. We were in the right place at the right time. Well, it's a bit like Sweet, a bit like Slade, a bit like Shuadi Wadi, a bit of everything. A bit like Alvin Starr, everything all in that. We didn't get a record deal. And we got to the end of 76. I remember thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm doing cover versions in a band. It, it, it's, it's gone, I've had enough of it. I've been doing the same songs for three years. I'm going to finish, because I'm 30 next year, 
and that's too old. I'm going to be 30. No. So I started knocking around with some guys in a band doing exactly the same as I was doing, cabaret clubs, and, and they were fed up. And we were all 29, 28, 29, and we were all fed up. And I remember saying to one of the guys in the band, I used to get up and do some 60s stuff with them and found I enjoyed that more than anything else I'd been doing for years. I said, look, I want to have one final go at this. Get in a band. Let's do what we want to do, not what goes down well. So we'll do what we like. We'll do old rock and roll standards, stuff from the 60s. And I started to write one or two songs, very derivative at the time, of American high school, do what 50s rock and roll stuff that was very, like the pretty things and the early stones and the kinks, stuff like that. Said, right, we need a name. Said, well, we'll call us. What do we call ourselves? Either the Sharks or the, Je the Sharks or the Jets from West Side Story. And we tossed a coin. Heads, Sharks, Tails, Jets. Came down Tails, we were the Jets. And we started to rehearse and do some stuff. And one of the guys in the band, I always thought it was me, but it wasn't. The bass player, a guy called Dick and Hubbard said, we're from Salford. We don't care whether this band's going to be successful. We call ourselves the Salford Jets. Yeah, why not? So we started doing bits and pieces. I was writing songs. And Dickon knew a guy that managed Alvin Stardust. But they had a connection with his record company. So we did some demos of some of the stuff that I'd written. Went to them. They didn't want it, but somehow we got the address of some music publishers. So for the first time in my whole life, we went down to London, me and Dickon, with these four songs. One of them was called Looking at the Squares, and the only line it goes, walking on the town town, looking at the squares, walking on the town town, looking, two and a half minutes. That was the only lyric. So I went to London, What's his producer called Terry Noon straight away who'd produced Mississippi by Pussycat and Una Paloma Blanca. So he had, that was his, he'd made his money from that. He said, I love these songs. I can get you a record deal. We said, well, we're going to see some other music publishers. He said, okay, but come back to me tomorrow and I'll, I'll get your record deal. And we stayed at Dickens' auntie who'd been an actress on Coronation Street and lived in... Uh, Hampstead Darling, this beautiful 400-year-old cottage. And she had pictures of the wall of her and Keith Richards and her and Ringo. And, and her, Dickens' uncle was Klaus Foreman, who did the, the cover for Revolver, who'd married his auntie, the, the actress. So we're in this cottage. It sounds ridiculous now. Went back to Terry Noons the next day, and we said, we've been to some other music publishers. We told them we'd spoke to you, and they said, go to Terry Noon. He'll be better than we are. He said, right, he said, I'll get you a, I'll get you a recording contract this week. We left his place and I jumped up in the air and when you click your heels, and I looked at Dick and I said, we've got a record deal. So we get a phone call, I say, look, um, the producer, the, the head of A&R at Warner Brothers is a guy called Dave D. I said, yeah, of course, it, we know Dave D. From a 60s man called Dave D. Dozy, Vicky Mikatich, but he's now head of A&R. He's going to come now to Salford. He wants to see whether you can play or not. Loves the songs, particularly loves looking at the squares. So he's going to come down and just, he wants to make sure they can put you in a studio and you can play. 
Of course, we can play. Came down to Salford, Dave, to this bloodbath of a club called the Conran Club, where they were fighting in the aisles. The bounce, it was great, typical Salford club, you know, blood on the walls, smash glass, wonderful. To us, perfectly normal. So we come off stage, and I, I will have to swear now, so you can always bleep it out. Come off stage, Dave D says, he said, that was great. He said, I can't do accents very well. He said to me, he said, you, Sweens. And the first one he ever called me Sweens. How old are you? So I said, well, I'm 30, Dave. This was probably December 77. I said, I'm 31 next year. No, you're fucking well not, mate. You're 22. So I was 22 then for about 10 years. Because you couldn't be 30 and be in a band. However, the police were... The Stranglers were, 999 were, even the Clash were in the mid-twenties. But we thought you had to be 18. Punk had just started that year in 77. And I think I'd realised, listening to the Vibrators, listening to The Damned, but listening to Eddie and the Hot Rods, Dr. Feelgood, the very early jam. All this stuff was resonating in my head. I realised I could write songs that didn't have to sound like prog rock or didn't have to sound like 10cc or they, they could just be like my hero, the pretty things that were my heroes. I could write these songs. So we got the record deal. They were gonna do the B-sides called Dancing School and it was very, very dartsy, shawadiwadiye, but, but punky. And they didn't let us go with that. And they went with looking at the squares, which was punkier. So Phil Sayer at Piccadilly Radio gets his record from Warner Brothers with no blurb, but it says, look at the squares, the Salford Jets. Phil Sayer thinks, they've got to be from Salford. This is ridiculous. Played it, loved it. He said, it's only got one line in it. And at the end, you could do that in those days, at the end of the programme, he played the record again. So we went from being a local band, we were doing a residency at a pub in Swinton, to being on Piccadilly Radio with a million listeners overnight. So we went to our residency that next Monday that was building up slowly and it, you couldn't get in. That was the power of radio. And that then was the start of the success of the Salford Jets. DJ. How did playing music turn into playing music on the radio? So we became the Piccadilly Radio's house band, basically. So you could put the Salford Jets on at the New Century Hall, which is reopened now. And we were about 300 quid, which is quite a lot of money. But the jam or madness or any of the other bands around at the, at the time, Buscocks, they'd have been maybe 1,500 quid, two grand. We could fill the pl same places. So people said, put the Jets on. Like, they're a third, they're not even a third, they're, they're a fifth of the price of a chart band, but they can still fill, because we were so successful in the north of England. And then Gina, I've got a call, Tina, went to, was number five on their top ten, which was quite a big deal. I mean, if you look at it now, I've got it somewhere in my archive, it's all national bands and us. And... We were doing, in the summer of 1980, so we re released, so Gina came out on an EP and the Manchester Boys and then Who You Looking At? 
came out in the summer of 1980 and went into the charts, to the top 75. And we were doing national TV, or quite a lot of it by this time. And Piccadilly Ray said, we're going to put a concert on at Salford Rugby Club and we'll have the Dooleys, but we'll have the Salford Jets co-headlining. And it's hilarious, the Dooleys and the Salford Jets. In fact, all the other bands were all new wavy punk bands and the Dooleys, God bless them, were at the uh, were on last. So they said to me, we're going to do a promo for the, for the gig. And I said, well, can I do it? And I'd been doing interviews on the station about the song, about the band, so they all knew who it was. I said, all right, well, here's your script. I said, well, I won't do a script. I'll just do it off the top. And I sort of did, Iris Mike Sweeney here, Salford Jets, I, you know, don't, don't be a Wilbur, which is one of my little catchphrases. Don't be a Wilbur. Come down to the Willows, have a great time. You know, we'll get it sorted for you. This in my, that, exactly like that. And they put that out on the radio and Tony Ingham and Colin Walters, who ran the station, I saw Tony last Friday, said, see him, we can put him on the radio. And there were no regional voices anywhere on radio at all. Everybody talked like that. Hi, and uh, welcome to radio. Thank you, Dick. You know, they, they, they all had these assumed voices, you know. Even if they came from Liverpool, as John Peel did, you could sometimes tell with him just about he had an accent, but everybody else. But they all, they'd all been club DJs. That was the, the pathway to being on the radio as club DJs. So, of course, that was that whole persona was like talking, you know, and uh, hi. And very, very uh, smashy and nicey. They put me on the radio, and it was, it was incredible. I, I was doing. Now they, they got me to do the top ten program. I didn't like some of the records, so I smashed the records up with a hammer, live on air, and played some songs that I wanted to play. Which was I played the Sex Pistols, I played the Beatles, I played the Kinks, and they got loads of complaints. They said this the other guy. He only played three songs because he didn't like the other seven. So they thought, crikey, this Sweeney's a bit of a loose cannon. What do we do? So they put me on Thursday night, 10 till midnight. So I thought, do what you want. So I went on the first night, one program a week, and I said, listen, if you're going to write into me, I assume people wrote in. If you're going to write into me, I don't want you to write into me on a piece of paper. It's got to be something else. So the next day, next day, they got the, a boot off a car, Tire, brick, a news a newspaper boy's bag, um, cardboard box. They got all this stuff in the next day, and a load of all this ordinary mail. And I said, the next week, the only thing I didn't get was a kitchen sink. Next morning, Friday morning, kitchen sink arrives at Piccadilly Radio, and I didn't realise. And they were saying, "This is incredible." I said, "Why?" I said, "Well." The breakfast show might get two or three people wrote in, two, three, four, five letters a day. You're getting all this and a load of other, you're doing two hours on a Thursday. Two hours. And they realised that something had happened. And by the time I'd done about eight programmes, the reaction to it was incredible. They could just tell, I didn't know. I just assumed this was the norm. So on the midnight, when I finished, this programme towards the, the end of December. I'm walking out and my programme controller walking down the corridor. I thought, fancy him being here at midnight. He said, have you got a moment? Coming to my office, this is Tony Ingham. And I went, yeah. He said, how do you think you've done? 
well, I think I've done fucking brilliant, actually. And he said, yeah, so do we. How would you like to start on Monday in the new year, first Monday in the new year, one till three every day? And that, that was my life changed. I won the lottery. So within three months, or it might have been six months, because it might have been six months, my audience for that afternoon programme had doubled. And by the next one, I'd, my audience was bigger than the breakfast programme. So it took months. And when I used to come off air in school holidays, there'd be hundreds of kids waiting. And it was just unbelievable. It was like, in the north of England, it was like being one of the Beatles. It was just the biggest life-changing experience ever. And what took you from Piccadilly to, to Capital Gold? So, became this big radio star in the north of England. And did you love that, by the way? Loved it. I was. I always want, right. I really wanted to be famous, and it was. I loved every minute. The Jets allowed me to be eighteen for about four years, and then I went on the radio, and I, I could be twenty for another three or four years, and. I, I can't explain what it was like. I remember doing um, a summer fair at Ladywell Hospital in Salford, and I took about 20 or 30 photos with me. Came, as, as I'm on, I came down the road, still living just outside Salford at the time, came down the road and it was like, the road was really busy, but my dad used to work at the hospital, so I knew there was a, a back door in for deliveries. So I went in the back door, security, you know, saw the guy on, on the lodge, said, I'll oh, just go and park up there, Mike. So I went up. Watching this corridor, somebody met me and said, Hi, Mike's going, Oh, right, brilliant. I said, The stage is at the end, and they had the, a door, and they'd built a stage up. And as I walked up the stage with these 20 photographs onto the stage with nothing, there were thousands of people there, and they screamed at me, I've got 20 photos and a pen. And I'm thinking, Oh my God. And that happened. For the next two or three or four or five years. And then we were successful. Then we split and became Piccadilly Gold and Key 103. And I went on Piccadilly Gold, still very successful. I remember thinking, why am I not on the FM station? And this is the first maybe, I'm not stupid, you, you read the runes. I thought, okay, I would have thought I'd be doing the breakfast programme on Key 103. As it was, I was doing the breakfast programme on Piccadilly Gold. All right. And I felt I was treading water a bit. So Steve Pink left and went to Capital Radio. When he was there, he found that Pritchard Parks' brother used to listen to me when he came through Manchester and that he'd become a, a real fan to an extent and that Richard Park, who ran Capital Radio, um, knew about me. And fair, do, fair dues, Penke. He said, why don't you go down and see him? So I was interviewing, I think it was something like Daryl Hall in London. And got hold of Richard Park's episode. I said, it's Mike Sweeney. I'm in town next week. Can I come in and see Richard? Yeah. Yes, you made this appointment. So I went to see Richard Park, who was on Capital Radio. And we spent, we're supposed to be there 30 minutes, we spent an hour talking about Scotland, Glasgow, 
Salford, rock and roll and football. That's all we talked about, nothing else. And we finished the interview and he said, look, I'm sorry, Mike, I can't do Richard's voice. I'm sorry, Mike, I think you'll have to go now. He had stuff to do and he did. And we'd done half an hour more than we should have done. As I'm leaving, he said, of course, Michael, you, you wouldn't ever consider coming down to London. I said, I would very much consider it, Richard. Let's get it sorted. And that was it. That was just like that. What a moment. And that was exactly how it happened. I suppose you wouldn't, I would very much consider it, Richard. What a moment. I walked down the corridor the first morning, there was a woman in twin set and pearls. So I looked pretty much to look like now. I've got a T-shirt on, a pair of jeans, a pair of trainers and a skinhead. And I looked like a bank robber. And this woman said, uh, excuse me, have you come to fix the coffee machine? I said, no, I've come to do the morning programme, love. I went on air and day one, if I had less problems on Capital Radio from day one than I did on Piccadilly Radio. Because when I started on Piccadilly Radio, all the posh people in Alderley Edge and Hale Barnes Darling, their kids started talking like Mike Sweeney and they were horrified. They, but I went at a perfect time. So Man United... Take that, Oasis, Coronation Street, those four brands at that time, were there at their peak. And it was wonderful from day one. And you did 10 years. 10 years. I came off air that first day, Richard, my boy, that was very good. And it, it was, I was very lonely all the time. I lived on my own because I didn't want Viv to come down because it wouldn't have been right for us to have come down. So I lived in a flat on my own, and all I did was I went running, I found a club to play football with, and I worked, and still commuted all, all the time I was there. I probably felt lonely all the time I was there. I think I wanted to come home all the time I was there, but thank God the job was so beautiful and wonderful, it just about balanced it. But I was never, it was very exciting, but I was dead lonely. Yeah. I was lonely. And, and now here you are, it, you know, we're speaking in Salford on Radio Manchester every day. Does it feel like you've come home? I've been fortunate. When I look back, left Piccadilly right at the right time. I felt that Capital Radio was changing, and it was. Not just gold, Capital Radio was changing. There was a finite time there. And I knew it was time, maybe, to come home. So first thing I did was, I said, look, I'm, I'm tired, Andy, my programme controller, who's a, who became a close friend. I said, you need a, you need a breakfast presenter for Capital Gold in Manchester, because they they'd gone national. So I went, I came home to do the breakfast programme, and I used to go up to London on Tuesday, record all my weekend programmes. I said, the rock programme, the rock and roll programme, the 60s programme, I did that. So he said, record those. And so I got three, four days in Manchester. I went in Salford on, on, on the keys. And I, and I got two days in London. And I did that for about three years. That was to make it to 10. And I remember thinking, it might be time now for this to change. John Myers was in the studio opposite me doing a programme one week because he liked presenting. He was just filling in for somebody on smoother somewhere, maybe Century. And that morning that he started this programme, he was only going to be there for five days. I was doing my programme and the news came that he'd got the licence for an FM rock station in Manchester. So when I'd finished the programme, 
he finished his program and I went into the studio and said, John, I like rock, I can talk. Will you give me a job? And he went, I think we will, mate, yeah. <laughs> I think we will. <laughs> and it's a bit, a bit more complicated. So I ended up on, on rock radio, Real Excess, which was wonderful. We were always stuck for money. But I had this new young audience. I was playing rock music on an FM rock station. And then the BBC, after all those years, uh, Kate Squire got in touch with me. And that was my time, I think, to come to the BBC. And I've been there on the daytime programme, 10 years in January. It's an amazing story. It is. Isn't it? I still look back at all the... You know, you've seen the movie Sliding Doors. Yeah. Well, I've had one, two, three, four sliding doors go my way. Mike, it's time for the first of your five questions from this box here of 45. I'll dip into the box. Okay, okay. You say when, and I'll pull one out. Each question's on a 45 sleeve. Okay. Right, now... Oh, it really is as well. What is your greatest DJ moment? Walking into Paul McCartney's London office to interview Paul McCartney. Going into the room, being told by another posh girl that I only had to do 20 minutes, and if I did any more than that, uh, they would cancel the interview. And I had to do 20 minutes, and she told me about four or five times. Paul McCartney came in, and I said, I allowed myself two seconds, two seconds only. <gasps> I'm interviewing Paul McCartney, and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him and his three mates. I had our kid, and he said, nobody's called me our kid since 1963. Where are you from? I said, I'm from Salford. And he said, just down the road from me. He doesn't live in Liverpool. I don't live in Salford. And I knew what he meant. And at the end of that interview, when the posh girl came in to get me out, scruffy skinhead, he said, um, can you get me and Mike a couple of coffees? And we sat there for an hour, talking about Salford, Liverpool and music. Greatest moment in my DJing life. That question will never get a better answer than that. Back into the box for another question for you. Say when. When. Who do you have to thank? Right, I've got to do them in order. So Miss Gray, my headmistress at school, who always encouraged me, even though I, I definitely wasn't conventional at all. But then let's go. Tony Ingham and Colin Walters, Piccadilly Radio. Richard Park and Andy Turner at Capital Radio. Simo and Myerze at Rock Radio. And Kate Squire and Andrew Bowman at BBC Radio Manchester. All believed in me at the right time. And what about Viv? From a personal perspective, she's, she's been, 30 years that we've been together now, she's been my whole life. I wouldn't be remotely the person I am without her. She's just been, and if you could take, if you said to me, you can be a second, a 75 year old van driver, okay, with Viv, or you can be, have been on Radio 1, uh, and then Radio 2, and you're doing stuff on Radio 4 now, and be very, 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 very wealthy and successful, and you've been on telly, and you wouldn't have Viv, would you swap it? And the answer's no. In fact, throw a lottery win on top of that, and the answer would be no. Beautiful. She's an absolute, she's my best mate, 
I adore her to this day. Now, I'm going back to see her later on, we're going to have a beer. I feel the same about her now as I did the day I met her. Another question from the box. Go on. Now. <laughs> Can you complete this sentence? I wish I'd never. I wish I'd never sold my vinyl collection. The only thing in life I regret. Why did you sell it? Because I got a lot of money for it. <laughs> and it was in a loft at home. I didn't think I'd ever play it again. And I was supremely stupid. That's the only regret in my whole life. That's unbelievable that you can say that, isn't it? Yeah. Back into the box. Question four this time, Mike. Okay, go. Question four is, what's the greatest record ever made? I think probably Buddy Holly and the Crickets and Rave On. First proper rock and roll band. First guy that wrote his own songs. So bass player, drummer, guitar player with a self-written song. So probably that's the genesis rather than not even, you know, you say, well, Peggy Sue, no, no, no. Ravon is, is the, the great, great grandparents of all rock and roll. I thought you might have said a Beatles song. No, because that, that is the genesis of the Beatles. That, not even Elvis. The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, The Smiths, keep going on in time, Oasis, Blossoms, yeah. all those templates. And, by the way, don't stop there because there's an artist, a young artist that we both love that follows from Blossoms, yeah. Seb Lowe. Seb Lowe. All that is based on that rock and roll band because Seb has a band now. Yes. So when he was a solo singer, he was okay. No, it wasn't. It was really good. We've got a band, and it's yeah. brilliant. None of those bands would have existed without that band. All Mancunian bands, obviously, you've just mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, the Beatles coming out, the Stones coming out, the Kings coming out, the Who coming out, that. I can start going through all them. Uh, the Pistols, all of them. Faces, all those bands. You can't have that without Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Your final question now, Mike, from the box. Okay, so I'm going give, to uh, give it a good rummage. Say when. When. What is the best way to prepare? You can take that any way you want. Read stuff. Read stuff first. If it's, if it's this stuff in print, read stuff. If you can't read, do it in your mind. So if you're going to do something or something's happening or you, prepare in your mind as if it was something that was written or you were writing it down. So... It's, you can unfold it just as we're having this interview now, we're having this conversation. You might say, well, you're just doing it off the top of your head. You're not, you're formulating stuff. So read, even if that reading is generated in your, in, within your, your mind, within your mind's eye, read. Because you get information, I think, better if you can see it written down. Yeah. I tend to over-prepare, say for an interview, I'll do a lot of reading and then I'll write quite a lot, notes, bullet points, sometimes even actual questions, and then tend not to have that piece of paper in front of me. Oh, I don't, so if you talk, if we go on to radio, my preparation is functional. So, highlight a pen, 
one or two bits and pieces, a few bullet points, and I do, every, I do a lot of it on my heart, on my soul, and that writing in my head. So for me, it appears, it, it, it's there, actually. So I remember interviewing Boris Johnson, and I knew what I was going to say. It, it, and the, what I said was, does it not embarrass you when your, whatever the relevant minister was, turns up at the Sussex, uh, in, uh, it was in Surrey, where they'd had flooding, uh, looking as if he's come from a cocktail party in, May, in Mayfair. But that question was in neon lights in my mind. I hadn't written it down, but it was there. So for radio, I don't know, and I've been, I've been doing it for years the same way. Of course, you, you do some preparation in terms of intellectual preparation, and you make sure you, you've got escape routes, etc. I um, have been on air with you a few times. I'm really lucky to be able to say that. And what I love about um, a Mike Sweeney interview is that the song that's on air can be fading and you just pick up. There's no point at which that interview starts. It's just a conversation. I've always done that from day one. I'm better at it now than I was. But I remember the very first interview I ever did uh, was first day on radio and I couldn't operate. So I was sat at a table, Mike right now with a pair of headphones. My producer at the time, who was the guy that hired me, so tapped me on the back of the head with a rolled up newspaper, went to stop talking. So I would say, and now a record. <laughs> and the door opened and the Bee Gees walked in. And I'd never interviewed anybody. And they just sat in front of me and I'd been talking about my mum making me cold toast to take to school. So BG sat in front of me and Robin Gibbs said, were you on air then? And I said, yeah. You're talking about cold toast. So yeah, my mum used to make it. And he went, so did ours. And that was the conversation. That's where we went. Brilliant. Got one last question and it's the end of the world, right? And you've got to play the last three records on earth. What okay. would they be? Right. I'll do them chronologically, so there's no, it's chronological order, not, not, so it, please please me. The record that changed my whole life forever, thank you John Lennon and Paul McCartney, that was a proper collaboration from the guys as well. Mr Tambourine Man by The Birds. very best pop record ever made in the history of pop records and 17 going under Sam Fender by Sam yeah. Fender yeah there's a line in that it, that's the thing about anger it begs to stick around I was too too frightened to hit him I'd hit him in a heartbeat now I think of the lyrics was that you it's me my whole life. I was far too scared to hit him, but I would hit him in a heartbeat now. That's the thing with anger, it begs to stick around. So if you fleece you of your beauty and leave your spell when I'm too over, if you hurt the ones who love you, you hurt them like they're It's my whole life that 
it really emotionally affects me because anger does hang around. It's, I'm, I'm gonna, so I'm due my, my next tattoos and the, and the lyrics for that song will be the my next tattoo. It's just, it's me, I was too afraid of hitting him. And I remember being a humiliated little kid whereas I really just should have smacked somebody rather than let them, and it's not physical bullying often, it's, it's, it's psychological. To be humiliated, it's worse sometimes than getting, you know, a bloody nose. But that is the most unbelievable song. And I listen to it now, it hits me every time. It's one of the most incredible records I've ever heard in my life. What a way to finish. Mike, thank you so much, mate. Let me shake your hand. Thank Pleasure. you so much. Pleasure to do it, honestly. Mike Sweeney, and that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.